you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn to Proverbs chapter 25. And uh, last week we talked about a verse and we kind of showed you what the verse looked like you was talking about somebody getting uh, overindulged in the Bible and actually getting sick on the Word of God. And of course we worked through that and I took you through the Bible and I showed you how that uh, um, it's the whole key was, you know, getting the right balance in your life with the Bible. And balancing out the Word of God in your life as you read it, you study it, and as you apply it in your life. You know, so many people, the Bible talks about rightly dividing the Word of Truth. One of the major issues that people have is wrongly dividing it. And when that happens, then you get filled up with all of the things in the Bible that that produce a negative effect in your life, and the Bible then becomes boring. The Bible becomes, you know, you get filled up with it, as the verse talked about last week. And we talked about the Word of God being our all-sufficiency, everything that we need, uh, and how that we uh, need it on different levels in our entire life. You know, mo mo the Christian life is not <clears throat> a very complicated thing, I realize there's some complicated issues you have to face and deal with and struggles we all have. But fundamentally, the Christian life is just a series of, of levels. And, you know, you, you, it's, like a, it's like a staircase in a, you know, a high-rise building. It's just got 20, 30 stories in it. You take the stairs, you go up two flights of stairs, and then there's a landing. And they put those in there so guys like us can rest before you take the next one. And then you go up the next set of steps, and then there's another landing, and then it just keeps moving up uh, the steps until you, until you get to the top. You keep going higher. And if you, in a physical sense, unless you're just, you know, in really, really good shape, every level gets a little harder. And that's true spiritually. You know, you start out, you get discipled, you start getting the basics in the Bible, and you actually start to go up to a level, and then you'll hit a plateau. And you're going to find that on that plateau, God's going to reveal to you some issues in your life that you're going to have to fix before you can go to the next level. And you work on those, you accept those, you take responsibility for those, and then you move up the next set of flight of stairs to the next level. And then at that level, you know what? You're going to find some more issues. And as you work through the issues, you go up to the next level, and it just... You know, and what happens in most Christians' life, and this happens, unfortunately, in the first, second level, you go up those levels and you find things that you don't want to fix, Amen. find things you don't want to work on. And you actually think that you can continually grow spiritually without fixing things in your life, and you just simply can't. So when the Bible last week talked about getting the Bible in all sufficiency, it's simply talking about everybody in this room this morning, if you're saved, you need the Bible on whatever level you're at. But you don't want to stay in that level. You want to keep moving up that level. And we're going to talk about some of that today as we move on through here. I showed you, remember last week, th <clears throat> three basic fundamental divisions that, you know, will balance the Bible out. Now, there's, there's a lot of areas, but these are three of the main ones that you, you really have to start with as far as understanding the Bible before you can even get it in a workable format. And you remember I told you that, first of all, the Bible was written to three distinct people groups. And you've got to realize that the Bible is written to the Jews, some of it's written to the Gentiles in particular, and some of it's written to the church. 
that's a balance, being able to understand where he's writing and who he's writing to and how it goes together and how it stays separate. I, I think one of the major ones is we talked about last week was the Bible, talk about dividing it, is the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of heaven. You're taught today almost exclusively that they're the same. And of course, they're not the same. And I showed you last week how that, you know, everything in your Bible, I mean, when you start to put it together and get it laid out, everything in your Bible is going to come down to one kingdom or the other. It's an incredible concept of the Bible. And then I talked about the fact that every, every scripture, every book, every chapter will have three key applications to it. There'll be a historical application that it actually, actually took place in history. It's an accurate historical event. And then I, I showed you how that there'll be swing verses that will take that historical application and move it into the future in a prophetic sense. And I showed you the key swing verses on a couple of real easy ones. And then obviously, once you get the prophetic application, you're going to find that on an everyday living a lifestyle, the Bible has practical things. We call it the inspirational application. Things that you can get out of there for you and things that are going to help you. And I told you last week that without these three basic divisions, you, you'll, never, you'll never figure out your Bible. These three areas will form the basic structure of the Bible that you will work through uh, all the time and, and for the rest of your life. It, 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 just, it just staying with those fundamentals and developing them. A working knowledge of how these three work through the Bible uh, and then allowing the Bible to work through you. You know, the spiritual health and well-being and the welfare of each believer through a biblical balanced spiritual diet like we talked about last week that never fills you up because it's the unsearchable riches. And when you get the Bible in the right balance and see it from the right perspective and understand what it really is in its balance, you, you just can't get enough of it. I've been in the Bible for almost 50 years. And, uh, I, I, you know, I, I just, it, to me, it's as fresh today as it was the first day I, I saw it. And, um, you know, and the older you get in the Bible and the longer you spend in the Bible, you know, you would think, <clears throat> and this is kind of a paradox, you would think that after 50 years in the Bible or 30 years in the Bible or 40 years in the Bible, that you would know a lot about the Bible. But spending more time in the Bible, that may be true to a certain extent, but I will tell you this, you spend 50 years in the Bible and somebody says, what, are you, what have you learned? Your answer is going to be, it's not what I learned, it's what, how much more I've got to learn. Because you see it's unsearchable. There's no bottom to it. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's like that lady back in the Old Testament that, <clears throat> that didn't have any money and she went to see the prophet. And the prophet said, bring all your buckets and barrels and everything. And, and the oil just kept coming in and there was no end to it. She could have as much oil as she could carry. And I'm going to tell you something. You can have as much Bible in your life as you can carry, as you want. So today we're, we're, we're going to look at our next set of verses uh, maybe verses 17, 18, or 19. And again, we'll, we'll look at it. Uh, some of them are a little more uh, in-depth than others. Some of them are very simple and plain. Some of them are, are actually kind of funny. We'll talk about some of that. And, but let's read it here, Proverbs 25, verses 17, 18, and 19. It says, withdraw, withdraw thy foot from their neighbor's house, lest he be weary of thee and, and so hate thee. 
A man that beareth false witness against his neighbor is a maul and a sword and a sharp arrow. Confidence in an unfaithful man in a time of trouble is like a broken tooth and a foot out of joint. Terry Joe, my old buddy, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the sermon this morning? Thank you, Terry. Now, let's start with verse 17 here. It says, Withdraw thy foot from thy neighbor's house, lest he be weary of thee, and so hate thee. Now, this is like so many of the Proverbs that we've read. On the surface, it's an easy fix. I mean, everybody can figure this out. We'll talk about it just to make a a point for you in your life. But, uh, you know, it's one of those things that on the surface, it looks real simple. But it has a deeper application to it, like everything in the book of Proverbs and throughout the Bible. And uh, on the surface, it's simply saying, when you're invited to a friend's house, don't overstay your welcome. I said, when you're invited to a friend's house, don't overstay your welcome. Know when to go home. Don't wear out your welcome. As Dandy Don Meredith used to say, Turn out the lights, the party's over. <laughs> Time to go home. <clears throat> Twenty people get invited over at somebody's house at 5.30 for dinner and fellowship. And at midnight, everybody's gone, but there's always that one person continually wanting to show you their wedding pictures. <laughs> and it's of their first wife. <clears throat> I mean, on the surface, the verse is pretty easy. Uh, it's being sensitive to other people's time. You know, it's, they just had you for a meal. They were not intending to adopt you, you know. <laughs> but beyond that simple explanation, it's a general truth here that's talking about, in general, being sensitive to any and all circumstances that we find ourselves in. Obviously, when you go to somebody's home, you're sensitive to that you're not in your own home. I mean, you don't put your feet up on the couch. You don't take your shoes off and put them over the thing. You don't just, I'm really tired, so you go into their bedroom and lay down and take a nap. You know, you're sensitive to, to, to where you were at. And, you know, in a general, it's talking about in any scenario, you want to be sensitive to the circumstances that you find yourself in. And let's just be honest this morning. God's people can be some of the most insensitive people you ever met in your life. I mean, we just can be. I, over the years, I've, I've just, four things I keep in mind about uh, being sensitive uh, in any situation that I'm in. And the first one, I always tell myself, and I'm always thinking, uh, know when to speak. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 7 says there's a time to speak. So you want to, you don't have to write this down. This won't work for you. It works for me. So in my mind, I'm always thinking, should I say that? You know, you're in a sensitive situation. Should I say that? And then the second thing I always ask myself is, is when I do, if I am going to speak, what am I going to speak? Bible talks about in 2 Timothy 1.3 and Titus 2.8, it talks about sound words and sound speech. 
I'm as guilty as anybody who can say some of the stupidest stuff at the wrong time you ever met in your life. But we all can. So I always know when to speak. I always know, try to know what to speak. And then I always know when to keep from speaking. Because Ecclesiastes 1.7 says it's a time to keep silent. And then the fourth thing, which is our text today, Proverbs 25, verse 17, I always know when it's time to go home. Now, the older you get, the less that'll be a problem because you want to be in bed. If you're Steve Brackeen, you want to be in bed by 9.30. <laughs> so I get it. And all of these are covered in the book of Proverbs and obviously throughout the Bible. Uh, some of the funniest things that I, I and this is where I really apply this. You know, when I do your weddings, when I do your wedding, <laughs> when I do your wedding, I, I got it all together. You know, I know families, I know everything. But I've done weddings where, you know, they were kind of peripheral people. And, you know, at a, at a wedding, you have a rehearsal. And, you know, you try to organize it. But in a wedding, things have to go in an order. The father sits one place. The mother sits one place. And then the mother of the bride and the groom, they, you know, they, they have their place. And, you know, the father of the bride, she walks her down. But, they, but the problem is that I found is many times... I walk into a situation where there have been, there's multiple parents from multiple marriages. And the last thing you want to do is set the wrong mother in the wrong seat at the wrong time. And I've had that happen. So I just kind of get there and I'm looking at this and I'm thinking to myself, if I know somebody there, I'll say, who's, who's the who's who's list on here, you know? But I'll I have two or three women. You know, we're all the, she said, this is the mother. Really? Which, with a real mother, please stand up so I can have you seated, you know. So, and I've learned how to do that. You just, simply, you just simply say, okay, now get your mother and show her where she's going to seat. See, I don't have to get in that. Now, you do have a problem if she goes and gets all three mothers. <laughs> You're really in a mess. But she'll go get the right mom, put her there, and I'll say, get your dad. Uh, I'll leave off the right dad. Get your dad. And, and show him where he, he's going to sit right here. You get him while I do this. And I ain't doing anything over here. See? <laughs> you know, I may, I, oh, my phone just went off, you know, and nobody's called. Yeah. Okay. Well, hold on. I'll get there and give him his last rights in about 15 minutes. Okay. Okay. Now, did you get your dad set? Oh, hi. Okay. You're her dad? Good. And you're her mom? Good, good. Now you got it. That's a lot better than saying, okay, sir, you sit here, uh, you're the, are you, and you're going to walk by. No, that's, I mean, he, he's not the real dad. Okay. You see the problem you can get in? Rule number one in dealing with people, be smarter than the problem. You can't figure it out, let them figure it out. Just step back and let them, you know, I've even seen where they got in a fight over it. I ain't taking sides in that. Big lady always wins, but that's okay, you know, I just, I ain't getting in it. Joe Biden. Uh, Joe Biden is as liberal as they come. But you got to like the guy. You know why you like him? Because he's so funny, the stupid stuff that he does. If anybody doesn't know when to shut up and says the wrong thing all at a time, it's Joe Biden. He's on national television one time addressing a bunch of people and, and, and 
they were all veterans, and and he makes somebody says there's a veteran here. His name is Joe so and so, and and he's up there speaking. He wants to make a big impact, so he's going to like all politicians. He's going to recognize the Joe veteran, and he says, Joe, good to have you here, a real true veteran. Joe, stand up and let us applaud you. Joe's in a wheelchair. And his way of getting out of it is a classic. Oops! <laughs> yeah, let's give him a round of applause. That's good. It's better than shooting yourself because that's what you should do. We all do stuff like that. You've got to learn when to speak and when not to speak. You've got to be sensitive. And sensitivity is just looking around at your scenario. Seeing, you know, I, you know what? Okay, if a guy doesn't have any legs, I'm not going to have him stand up. You know, if he's a paraplegic, I'm not going to have him come up and, and, and you, you just, you've got to be aware of where you're at. And in general, it's a, it's a really good principle, being sensitive to the circumstances and situations around us and know how to, know how to and not to do and say the things that need to be said because you're looking around you and you know, hey, you know what, if, if I ain't sure, I ain't saying something. Because I've learned through bitter experience the, the downside of that. And I'll tell you, you're, the less you speak honestly, the better off you are anyhow. Amen. Unless you're preaching, then we're going to go for an hour this morning, so you're in, out of luck. All right, now let's look at the verse 18. Now, this is going to be a, this is a good one here. A man that beareth false witness against his neighbor is a maul and a sword and a sharp arrow. Now, the verse shows us what, what damage can be done uh, uh, by a person who, who bears false witness or, or lies about somebody. And, and you want to remember now, as we're reading this verse, back in Proverbs 6, verse, chapter 6, verse 19, this is one of the six things that God hates. One of them is, you know, is bearing false witness. Someone who will lie about others for their own personal gain. And the Bible says they're like a mall. That's not Oak Park Mall. That's a big hammer they're going to hit you with. A sword that they're going to cut you with, make you bleed. And sharp arrows like the fiery darts of Ephesians chapter 6 that they're going to try to penetrate into your heart. And let's face it, someone who lies about somebody, and you see it all the time, they, uh, they, can, they can destroy somebody's reputation or try to. They can hurt your relationship with other people. They can, they can hurt, the, hurt the, the, your work you're doing with other people. It can cast a shadow on your character and in some cases even destroy somebody. All because somebody will have a false witness against someone uh, and, and lie about them. And, 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 and this, nowhere is this more prevalent and obvious than in two areas. Politics, first of all, and in Christianity, second of all. You know, most of us, most of you, anyhow, have seen it and experienced with people that you work with. I mean, it would be nice that everybody that you ever tried to disciple, everybody you ever tried to work with, really paid off and worked out. I've learned over the years that you've got to go through five or six or seven to find one or two that, that stick with it. But the one or two that stick with it make the other ones, you know, non-effect. It's okay. It's, it's part of dealing with people. 
But again, Proverbs 6, 19 says that these are the seven things that make an abomination. Six and the seventh being, you know, uh, the sowing discord among the brethren, but a false witness. And when you start to work with people, and many of you have, many of you have been doing it for a long time, you know that this will be inevitable. You just factor this into the ministry. It's an old familiar story that it goes on and on and you hear over and over again. Every pastor that ever was worth his salt could tell you stories like this. All of you who work with people, who, who deal with people, uh, and you've done it for, for multiple years, uh, you, you, you could tell your own stories. How you just start to work with someone and, and uh, you help them and, and all is great. Uh, you are there with them to help them, and, and uh, you bring them through some really tough times. I've watched many of you do that. You do things for them uh, over and above. I've watched you. But here's the deal. The Bible has an incredible quality about it that no other book has. It's what makes it the supernatural book that's alive that we talked about last week. And the Bible is a book that begins to read people. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11 and 12 says that the Word of God, which is a sharp two-edged sword, will discern the thoughts and the intents of a person's heart. That's the attribute of something that's alive. I, I say it, you've heard me say it many, many times, the only, Bible is the only book in the world when you start to read it, it will start to read you. And it will look inside you. And it will discern your heart. It will discern the thoughts and the intents of your heart. And then what it does, it manifests what who and who you really are. And a person, as you teach them the Bible, the Word of God, will begin to manifest to them what's wrong in their life or what needs to be fixed. Now, many times it's just basic things. But you know as well as I do, other times it's, it's, some, it's some areas that really need to be worked on. It goes back to that, that level, that cascading staircase that I talked about, that you go up the steps and get to a level. And when you start to get discipled or get into the Bible and work with the Bible, everybody gets excited about the opportunity, wow, we're going to study the Bible. What they don't get excited about is what the Bible starts to do in your heart once you start to get in it. Now, the real key for you and for me to be as successful in our life is to be as excited about what it'll change in your life as you are as excited about, oh, I'm going to get discipled or whatever. And the Bible is a book that begins to manifest. When you get to that level, it's going to manifest something. And now you're going to have to look at it. It's going to discern the thoughts and intents in your heart, and it's going to manifest to you what needs to change. What really are the issues? And, and, and at some point, uh, uh, they'll fix it. Many of you, everyone here that is, that is dialed into the Word of God and you're doing great and you're really growing, you, you, you know, and, unless you're just the, the exception to the rule, and every once in a while you'll find, you know that every one of you, as you began to grow, the Word of God began to show you things about your life you needed to change. And you know why you just said amen? Because you changed them. You met the challenge on the level and you said, you know what? I don't want to stop here. 
Because the Bible will reveal to, your, to you first. And at some point, you'll have to fix it. Or uh, if you won't fix it, then you begin that, and you've all seen this, you begin that long spiral away from the things of God and, and the Bible. And, and to mask someone's own true spiritual condition and the fact that they're not going to change. I mean, if a person is not willing to change, they're certainly not going to be willing to say, I'm not going to change and I'm the problem. They're going to say, I'm not going to change and you're the problem. And that's what they do. And, and they won't, uh, they, they will find, uh, you know, something wrong with you uh, and, and begin to bear a false witness against you and make you the problem. You, you want to be, be very careful around people. And this is stuff that you just learned. And, and, and most of you know this. You want to be very careful and step, walk circumspectly. And I'm not sure what that word means, but I saw it in the Bible the other day and it sounded really powerful. <laughs> you want to be very careful and walk circumspectly around people who in their lives it's always somebody else's fault. That's the first indicator that you got a problem. And the first indicator will be when you meet somebody that everything in their life has been somebody else's problem and somebody else's fault. I'm the eternal victim. And of course, it just doesn't work that way. I've had people come to me, and I've never said anything to you, uh, because I got your back. When you work for me, when you do ministry with me, I don't put you in some place to do it unless I have full confidence in you. And if you're in there, then it's because I have full confidence. But I'm going to tell you, I never come to you because you've got enough on your plate. And I, bottom line is, I got your back. You work for me, I will cover your back. Nobody will come and, and badmouth you to me. And it's a thing where I've had them come and say, well, I, you know, it, it's... You know, it's so-and-so just isn't doing, a very, doing, doing me right with the Bible. Uh, they're just not. I've had them call me up. I've just had one about, uh, what, five, six weeks ago by one of the sweetest gals in our church here and uh, who, who I have total confidence in, who, who really knows her Bible and has a good handle on things. And somebody, a lady that she was discipling, called me up and said, you know what, uh, she's not, uh, I just, I'm not getting anything from her. She's not doing what I want her to do. And I said, well, what do you want her to do? And she says, well, she's just, she's just, she's pointing out all the things in my life that I need to change. <laughs> well, we were going to point out all the things in your life that you didn't have to change, but that was just going to be half a lesson. And then we didn't know what to do with the rest of the time. I said, let me tell you something. I said, I, this gal... She's not, you know, she's been in our church now for about five or six, seven years. She's worked with 20, 30 people. I, she knows what she's doing. I mean, I've got women in my church right now that are going and blowing and growing because of the fact that this gal uh, worked with them or worked with other people with them. And, uh, you know, now we got you who don't like because she wants to sh talk about the things you need to change. I said, did you ever stop and consider that maybe you do need to change some things? But th that's the way it works. You know, and, you know, uh, 
I mean, people don't want people don't want to take accountability for what's wrong in their life. And you know what? We're all saying amen, but we didn't always want to do that. I know I didn't. You know, you have to learn to want to do that. But you're going to find that there's certain type of Christians who will bear false witness because they don't want to change. They're my special brand of liar, liar, pants on fire. I mean, they, 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 they're not going to change about them, so they're going to bear false witness on you. They'll lie about you in spite of all that you do for them. They will paint you in a bad light so that they can hide their true spirituality or lack of it under the deception that, that you're the problem. And it may work other places. It may be work with their mom or their dad or their aunt or their uncle or their best friend. It won't work with me because I'm telling you, if I put you in the bat, I know you're going to hit the ball. And I've, every case like that, I've said, well, let's sit down and find out what they did wrong. Oh, no, 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 no. See, that's the thing right there. You want to complain about somebody, but the bottom line is when you want to sit down and fix it, you'll never do it. You know why? Because when you get in the arena of truth, you're coming up short. And I've seen over the years lie about churches, lie about pastors, Sunday school teachers, deacons, workers, Counselors, I worked for about 10, 12 years with, with Truman Dollar. Truman Dollar is where I started when I first came to Kansas City. And Truman Dollar was, uh, I, I learned a lot from him. And I, I, I've always thought of my time uh, with him as, as he taught me some great lessons. And I, I remember that, you know, I would drive him places like when he would go to Springfield. He was big in the BBF down there. And I would drive him down and drive him back. And he would, wherever he would go. And I, we would talk on the way down. And I always cherished those conversations. I never forgot those things. Because, you know, most people, though, just talk to somebody. I was like Samuel. I didn't let any of his words fall to the ground. He had been in it longer than me. He knew more about things than I did, and he gave me some of the greatest practical advice. And he didn't even know he was doing it. He was just talking from his own experience. He said one time, and I can see him now. I can see him say, well, Bob, I'll tell you. I, that's why he always started it. And then he leaned over and said, I'm going to tell you this, but if you tell anybody, I'll kill you. <laughs> and he says, well, Bob, I'll tell you. People will always... Never remember what you did for them yesterday. But they're always going to want to know what you're going to do for them today. That is so true. That is so true. All the people that 20 minutes ago, everything was great and people were helping you. And they're still helping and working with scores of people. But, but uh, for that person, it doesn't work anymore. And now you're the bad guy. You're still teaching the same Bible. You're still impacting people's lives up one side and down the other. But 200 people are wrong, and you're right. That's how it, that's how it works. I've seen it hundreds of times, hundreds of times through the years in the ministry. Now, now let me give you some really good advice about people that will, you'll encounter like this. And I'm telling you right up front, I've learned this through bitter experience. 
And I want to help everybody. You heard my message a couple of weeks ago or whatever it was. I want to help everybody. But I have learned over the years that no matter the fact that I want to help everybody, I'm going to tell you, there's some people you just can't help. And my advice to you is my advice that I follow for myself. I stay away from people like that. You say, how do you, how do you keep that? I just, remember three, I just remember three words in connection with them. A maul, a sword, and a sharp arrow. I, I think about Zechariah chapter 13, verse 6, how many times when the Lord is talking prophetically there, and he says, where did you get these wounds? You know what he says? I was wounded in the house of my friends. You know, there's some people who you think are your friends until they get crossed with you over the Bible, and then you're going to feel some wounds. They'll hurt you. And there's nothing you can do to fix a person like that. If you figure it out, you come and let me know, be the first one. I just stay out of their way. They, their, their lives, their families the, uh, will self-destruct at some point. And, you know, there's some people, there's some people that you, you just can't help. They want the Bible in their life, but not the Bible principles in their life. They want the Bible, but they don't want to change what needs to be changed from the Bible. Uh, and those kinds of people, you know, they have deep issues that have been, you know, cultivated for years and have developed into a lifestyle of, of just never taking responsibility and always blaming somebody else for their issues to protect their own selves so they don't have to change. They'll go so far, but you'll never see the end fruit in their life. And it's, it's, always, it's always just the way it works. They will, they will try to dominate or control everything and everybody. You know, from their parents, their friends, their spouses, their, their children, their, the, the, their pastor, their, their, the people in their church. And they're never interested in fixing the problem. And you will get mauled. You will get cut. You will get bloody. You will get shot with a sharp arrow. And of course, never in their life will they, will they ever, ever, ever do and fix what needs to be, be fixed. And as long as a person will not take responsibility for their actions, you can't help them. I wish I had a magic wand that just got everybody past that. But you know, the key, we talked about it, Shawnee asked the question Thursday night, the key to you winning your children to Christ is not just their general concept about they're a sinner. Romans chapter 7 makes it clear that their sin has to become exceedingly sinful. They don't just get saved because salvation is some blanket program out there for when you hit the age of accountability. They get saved because they see their own sinful sin debt that only the Savior's death on the cross can eradicate their sin. In other words, they have to now take responsibility for their sin. And when you get saved, truly saved, and you take responsibility for your sin, it just begins a Christian life of you taking responsibility for your failures. But it starts at salvation. It's kind of hard to believe that a Christian could actually take responsibility for their own personal sin and get saved and then spend the rest of their life blaming everybody else for their problems. But that's what we do. And when we get in that bind, when we get caught,
caught. When, you, when the Word of God does what it does, it begins to manifest. It begins to discern the thoughts and intent. It begins to read and look deep down inside that person. And they go up a couple of levels and then they're standing there and God says, you know what? You got to fix this. And we ain't going any farther until you fix it. And I know what that person does because I used to do it. God's standing there blocking the next way and you say, Lord, would you go here? And you try to go around him. You try to distract him so you can get up to the next level. You won't get around him. You will stay right where you are till you take responsibility for where you're at and then you move up from there. And I wish I could say it was over at that point. Glad that's over. No. At the next level, you're going to find another set of issues because the Bible's going to look deeper inside you. I wish God would just cut to the quick and give me a short list of the really bad things and we could work on the other stuff later. He does it in, in, in increments. As you grow spiritually, as you get the Word of God, He gives you the truth on the level that you're at and then the grace to deal with it on that level and you take responsibility for it you see the principles. You have somebody working to help you. And that's just, the way, that's just the way that it works. Now look at verse 19. Confidence in an unfaithful man in a time of trouble is like a broken tooth and a foot out of joint. Now, this is a great principle in truth, but before I, I get into that, I'm just saying true to my, my teaching form here, uh, let me say this. All three of these verses, doctrinally, will be a reference to the Jew in the tribulation period, just so you know that. Uh, you know, the, uh, the swing verse here in verse 19 that shows you that is the phrase, time of trouble. Wherever you find a time of trouble in the Bible, the context is going to be doctrine of the tribulation period. That's Jacob's time of trouble. Sometimes it's called the time of trouble. It's a tribulation. So verse 17, when it says, withdraw thy foot, he's talking about in a doctrinal way that in the tribulation, people are going to hide out who the Antichrist is chasing. And he's basically saying, don't wear out your welcome there because you're going to get in trouble. Verse 18 about the base bearing the false witness, that is simply, you know, people, we read about it all the time in the Gospels where somebody turns on somebody else and turns them into the Antichrist for whatever personal reason. You know, in verse 19, what we're going to look at here now will be the people uh, or persons that God can't count on in the tribulation to, to help the Jew uh, and, and to give them the truth. So that's the doctrinal slant on it, but we're going to, let's look at the, pr at the practical here, because inspirationally for us, he's saying that an unfaithful man is like a broken tooth or a foot out of joint. In, in both cases, the person is worthless. And, you know, the Bible is an incredible book. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where teeth in the Bible is a great study. I don't know. Teeth is, it helps you form and enunciate words. And, you know, you find, looking at people today, you find, you know, you find people studying their teeth is an incredible thing. People always like to have nice teeth. They, they'll spend hundreds, thousands of dollars, you know, whitening them up, look like they, you know, look like they're, you know, I mean, they'll get porcelain teeth. They're all white, you know, they don't ever stain. 
when I was in the Army, the big thing with all the sergeant was to get a cap on your tooth that had, was gold that had a cut-out star on it. I mean, teeth are incredible. People ruin their teeth. You always tell a person that's on his way to ruin his teeth when he chews ice. Ice is going to ruin your teeth. Teeth are a great study. I study them all the time. Shoot. When you go to buy a horse, the first thing you do, you know what you do? Look at his teeth. Don't try that if you're going to get married to somebody and just. <laughs> but you got what I call sugar teeth. People who eat a lot of sugar, it rots their teeth. And you know, the dentist, first thing he looks in your mouth, he says, you eat a lot of sugar, don't you? Well, how do I know that? Because your teeth, I just had three of them fall out on the floor here while I was looking at them. <laughs> a, a lot of sugar will rot your teeth. Do you know that? And so you see people and, uh, you know, uh, you know, say, hi, my name is Bob Alexander. My name is Sugar Tooth. <laughs> you know, I'm going to get a little personal now. You know, you know that people who do meth, it, it rottens their teeth. You know that? I mean, you can be the most beautiful woman in the world till you smile. And you say, hey. You're a meth addict. I'm glad to meet you. <laughs> you can tell. I mean, they look like tombstones in a graveyard. I mean, they're all different shapes, sizes. I mean, come on. I'm not being cruel. I'm just telling you the truth. Oh, oh like you don't see that and say to yourself, oh, she smokes meth. <laughs> sure you do. And then you're looking at me like, oh, you shouldn't talk that way. Well, you think that way. Amen. You meth mouth. <laughs> Say that 10 times real fast. You're my math, though. No. You know. Then you got, you always tell, you got, you got, you got smoker's teeth. And that's people who smoke all the time. Their teeth are yellow. Like that wall over there. I mean, I mean they, they, you know, and you can do whatever you want to do, and you can't get that off. You smoke for 20, 30 years, and brother, I'll tell you what, you, you can sandblast it, you can buy a, you can do whatever you want to do. It ain't coming off. Nicotine's a real stain. When your kids are growing up, you take them to the dentist, and a lot of this is, you ever notice how that, that in the medical world, they just try to get you for every dime they can for everything? Even the vets. I take my dog to the vet, and there's a big sign up there. Have you had your pet in for a senior screening? <laughs> yeah. I'm going to take my dog in for a senior screening. That's what I'm going to do today. What does that consist of? You take him in, the vet puts him on the table, and he looks at you and says, he's getting older, that'll be $40. <laughs> I, 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 my daisy's on this this medicine because of the fact that she's, she itches and she bites a lot. And she shows she got her on this called Apoquil. And uh, it, it really works for her. I take them every once in a while myself when I get itching. <laughs> and, and, and I got a, you know, I get, I get a prescription every month. $60, man. $60. You say, why don't you let her itch? Because I tried that and she chewed her tail and it cost me $300 to have her tail cut off. So in the long run, the pills are, we share them. It's better. <laughs> so I get this letter from the vet. Her time, I called in for a prescription. 
vet says, well, it's been a year. We won't refill it till you bring Daisy in till we check her up. I'm saying she's fine. She's down here rolling on her back, playing with a bone. She's just great. No, no, no. For, my, for the vet to sign off on it, you want to see her. So I took her in. What am I going to do? She said, how do I stay home 24-7 and scratch her back on her belly? I ain't got time to do that. What do I do? I, I took her in. And I'll tell you something else. This vet thing is out of control. <laughs> now, I, when I go see my big doctors, my big doctors, you know, for my back or, or my other issues in life, I, I get it. You have a medical assistant comes in, you know, and they'll take their blood pressure and they'll do your vitals. I get that. They're not the doctor. Then you'll have, you sure they'll go out, and then somebody else will come in, and it's a, another medical assistant, and they'll do something else. And after about two or three people, then the doctor comes in. Now, I'm good with that. I'm okay, because it's me. I took that dog to this vet, and you know what happened? I saw, that dog saw four people before the vet ever showed up. It's like everybody's got to get their hand in my wallet. They had a medical tech. A dog does not, my dog does not need a medical technician. My dog needs Apoquil. That's all she needs. <laughs> She's got the itch and you got the fix. Just give me the prescription. <laughs> so this, this, this tech, tech comes in. She says to me, how's Daisy? Well, she's fine. She just took a dump on your floor over here because I've been sitting here for 20 minutes. <laughs> she's fine now. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> she wants to play. In fact, if you, if you don't hurry up, I'm going to join her. <laughs> this tech came in. And this tech was asking me the dumbest questions about my dog. Duh, does she have four legs? Look! What happened to her tail? We didn't have enough money for a whole dog. Come on, man. Get the vet. I want to get my prescription. Get out of here. After the tech, the girl comes in to weigh her. After, she says, I'm going to take her in, and, and, and I'm gonna, I'll bring her back. And she does her deal. After she's done, then the vet comes in. And the vet says, she looks really good. She's doing really fine. We'll have your prescription ready. I should, I'm saying to myself, What? I mean, I just saw Ben Casey, Dr. Kilgare, and, and, and now you, and, and, and for, I've been here an hour. Then you have people who have no teeth. Well, my mom was one of them. She had, you know, and it seems like in my, in my growing up days, everybody had all their teeth pulled. I'm not sure why that was. I was preaching one time, and, and, I, and, I, and I was preaching one time in a place in Ohio, I forget where it was, and, and, I, and I was preaching on hell, and I said, there'll be wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
And after I was done, this lady about 85 years old, just to look like a little prune, just all shriveled up. Nice. Oh, no, no, no. I'm a nice girl, nice woman, nice lady. No teeth. You know how it all cracks in around your mouth? She comes up, she says, Preacher, I heard what you said tonight. I don't have any teeth. <laughs> I said, Madam, in that day, teeth will be provided. I promise you. <laughs> I mean, come on. Baba, here's a song. I once had a gal with two teeth in her mouth. One pointed north and the other pointed south. Yippee, I, Kai, yippee. You got to sing that song sometimes. <laughs> teeth in the Bible are one of the greatest studies you'll ever study in life. Song of Solomon chapter 4 verse 2 says, now this is Christ looking at the bride of Christ talking about her teeth. Now I just gave you four or five of looking at the world's teeth or lack thereof. But when Christ looks at the church, he says, he says, an unfaithful man is like a broken tooth. You can't eat right with a broken tooth. You can't speak right with a broken tooth. You're embarrassed about a broken tooth. I broke my tooth. I've got to go to the dentist. I'm just going to walk around like this till Monday. It's too horrible to look at. Let me see. Can't even see it. I'll just get a sign put around your neck. I have a broken tooth. That's why you're staring at me. Song of Solomon chapter 4, verse 2. When Christ looks at the church, it says that thy teeth are like a flock of sheep. Now, you know, first date when you go out, and she has lovely teeth, by the way. I'm just telling you. I wouldn't look into her eyes and say, your, your teeth look like a flock of sheep. That's, that's <laughs> probably not going to work. But the practical spiritual application is teeth like a flock of sheep. You know what? Sheep are sacrificial animals. It's your teeth are formed. The words you enunciate all goes back to Christ's death on the cross for you. So the Bible says that the teeth are like a flock of sheep. Talking about Christ's sacrifice. That's what's behind it. The Bible says they're even shorn. They're balanced. They're the most beautiful set of teeth you ever saw in your life because they enunciate the words of sacrifice about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Bible says they came up from the washing. The washing of water. Somebody, your mom used to say, well, I'm going to wash your mouth out with soap. You know what, mom? You wouldn't need to wash your mouth out with soap if you just showed them how to wash their mouth out with the washing of the Word of God. The Bible says that none are barren. She's got a full set of teeth. And teeth are, teeth are, are a part of the enunciation of words that we say. And the world, we talk about and laugh about all the different stupid stuff about the teeth. But the Bible says that an unfaithful man's like a broken tooth. And God's, God's bride is, is, doesn't have any broken teeth. Their teeth are like a, a flock of, of sheep. They're even. They're balanced. 
They're washed daily with the word of God that nothing comes out of that mouth. None barren. Unfaithful man is like a broken tooth or a foot out of joint. In other words, they're worthless. No confidence in a broken tooth of what that person is going to say, what's going to come out of it. No confidence in the foot out of joint, their walk with God. The only thing that the church does in, the, one, excuse me, one of the things that the church does in building people is that by laying out the truth and the Christian um, taking responsibility for their, and being accountable to that truth, the man or the woman will prove themselves and the leadership will see that and have the confidence in them through what the Word of God does in their life. And a great example of this is found in 1 Samuel, in the Old Testament, found in 1 Samuel chapter 3. Two great examples in the Bible, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. Now, what a powerful chapter it is on, on gaining the confidence. Not like somebody that's got a foot out of joint, has no walk at all, or limps in their walk, or needs to be carried and helped in their walk. He says in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 19 through 21, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and did let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord after the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And over there in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 35, God said about Samuel that he would be a faithful priest. you know why? Because God established him. God established him in the Old Testament structure of the nation of Israel. And the Bible says in four simple areas in there, the Bible says Samuel grew. Are you growing? Or are you stuck on a level and you saying inside in the intense of your heart, I'm not going any farther. It's so-and-so's fault that I'm not growing. Where are, are you growing? Bible says for Samuel to be established and to become a faithful priest. Do you, are you, do you want to be a faithful priest? Do you want to be established in the work of God? Then you have to grow. It says, and Samuel grew and the Lord was with him. You got to grow, but you got to grow God's way, not your way. You can't put your own spiritual growth program together. I've seen that all my life and how a disaster that is. You got to get into the Word of God, and you can't sidestep the things in the Bible that you want to sidestep so we can work on the things that we really don't need to work on and take up the time so we never get to the things we really need to work on. That all works. He, he grew spiritually. The Lord was with him. And I want you to know in the Old Testament, it was through the Old Testament structure. His mother brought him down to put him into the ministry. It had to run through the priesthood. So she brings him to Eli, drops him off in the core structure system in the Old Testament by which God is going to deal with the nation of Israel. And the Bible says Samuel grew and the Lord was with me. And then it says that he let none of his words fall to the ground. He, hang on, he hung on to every word that he heard. 
He listened to everything that, and, and Eli wasn't the best guy on the planet. It just goes to show you that even in the Laodicean church period, where it's a mess, you can still learn some things if you've got the right perspective about it. And he let none of the words of God fall to the ground. He hung on to every word in that book because he knew that every word in that book was key to getting him from level to level to level to level. And the next thing it says that all Israel knew that he was God's prophet. And they had confidence in him being God's man because God established him. And God will, will through your growing and your being faithful, establish you in this church. And people will see it and have a confidence in it because they see the hand of God in your life most importantly, they see you being faced with the obstacles in life that would put somebody else out of it and you overcome them. Now that's a great Old Testament passage, but in the New Testament, you'll find this verse laid out in the life of a young man named Timothy. So you have one in the Old Testament and then you have one in the New Testament. And the first time Timothy shows up in the New Testament is Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 3, and that's very important. It says in verse 1, Then came he to Deborah, Paul, and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple there uh, named Timothus, Timothy, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewish, and believed, but his father was a Greek, which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra in Iconium. Now the Bible says about Timothy, it doesn't go into a lot of deal, it tells you about his mom and his dad. It looks like it, that his mom's a believer, but his dad's not, just from what it says there. May or may not be the way it is, but it looks that way. But that being said, there isn't anything talked about the fact that his training or what. Here's what it puts the emphasis on. That he was well reported by the brethren. The church had confidence in him. Where in the Old Testament, God's structure was the Old Testament nation of Israel through the priesthood. In the New Testament, it's a New Testament local church. That's where you get established. You don't get off and get established on your own in the Bible. You don't go out and build your own relationship with God out here in the wilderness like John the Baptist. In the New Testament, God has given you a structure. In that structure is where God is going to give you everything that you need that he has for you as you submit yourself and are faithful to that structure. It isn't you who get up and say, hey, I'm spiritual. It's the fact that you're well reported of by the brethren. And based on that confidence the church has in him, Paul had never met him before. Paul didn't, Paul didn't, uh, Paul didn't uh, grow up with him. It wasn't like they went to school together. Paul now, because of what he sees and what he hears from him being established, takes him under his wing. And Timothy goes now on the missionary trips with Paul. Now he's taking what he learned in his church. Now he's gaining experience and he's adding things to his faith. And Paul tells us the key in Timothy's life that was the basis for the confidence that he wasn't like a broken uh, tooth or a foot out of joint. The confidence that his church had in him and Paul's confidence in him. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. It says, Paul speaking, talking about Timothy. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith. 
that is in thee. What dwelt in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, I am persuaded that in thee also. Wherefore, I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. Be not therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the affliction of the gospel according to the power of God. It was his unfeigned faith. Feign means faint. Timothy was the real deal. People saw him, couldn't deny what God was doing in his life. They watched the hand of God in his life. They watched him grow. They watched him put himself under the authority of that church, and he grew. He, like Samuel, let none of the words fall to ground. God was with him, and there was a time in his life where God put somebody in his world that saw what God saw, and he says, you got a gift. And I'm going to help you develop it. With most of God's people, God does not get the real deal. God gets the raw deal. You know, it's absurd to me. Most of God's people that you meet that are down in those level up, they're always walking around saying, well, I don't know. Boy, I don't know. I'm struggling today. I don't know if I can. Uh, you know, I got this coming up and this coming up. I don't know if I can trust God. I don't know if God's going to come through. I don't know if I can trust God. You know, all their life they're worried about them being able to trust God. You know that's really not the issue. The issue is never can you trust God. The issue is can God trust you. That's the problem. You're still down on that first tier level down there walking around in a circle. You've grown no farther four or five years than you were the day you got supposedly saved. In ministry as in the Christian life in general, God looks for just one basic quality that will be the quality that everything else is built on, and it's faithfulness faithfulness to his mission through the establishing of yourself in his church that he can trust you with it. Every time we get on TV and you see the, the lottery is up there, you know, $800 million, $20 million, $60 million. Who of us has not said to ourselves <clears throat> a thought about, wow, wouldn't it be great to win all that millions of dollars. You we think about what we could do, where we could go, what we could buy. We all do. <clears throat> but you know the simple truth of the matter is? If God wanted to give you a million dollars, he doesn't need a lottery ticket to do it. If God wants to bestow on you millions and millions of dollars, he, could, he doesn't need you to go out and buy the lottery ticket and you win the number and go through all that anxiety. God could just put the right people in your life at the right time and somebody write you a check for $100 million. Do you know why God doesn't do that with you? Because he can't trust you with it. Now don't get mad at that. I don't see him standing in line to give me a check either. (laughs) 
We think of, of by chance, buying a lottery ticket. And I, I, I'm not one of these guys that says if you're going to hell, if you buy a lottery ticket. I'm just telling you, you're going to hell if you buy a lottery ticket and win and don't tithe off of it. That's what I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> the lost part of hell. Burn for eternity. But the eternal lottery ticket in your hand will not be consumed. I'm just saying, God could give us a million dollars in a heartbeat, but He doesn't. And He doesn't because fundamentally He knows that if we all got a hundred million dollars tomorrow, we'd never see you again. You Now you'd suddenly become a missionary to Acapulco, <laughs> Cameroon, You know what? By the same token, you know why some of God's people will never get the Bible down? They'll go through all their life as spiritually, like a lot of God's people go from paycheck to paycheck. You know, it's not about, it's, it's, it doesn't start with the fact that if you had a million dollars or two million dollars, it would fix all your problems financially. It would just put you in a bigger financial bind and in about three or four years you'd run through that million dollars. The problem is the fact that you need more money to be successful. The problem is you need to be faithful with what God gives you right now. Amen. That's the problem. And the problem is the reason why some God's people go through their whole life and they, just like some people go from paycheck to paycheck physically, a lot of God's people just go from Sunday to Sunday spiritually just grabbing whatever crumbs they can get. They'll never get the Bible themselves. You know why? Because fundamentally, the fundamental problem, the most precious thing in God's world, in His mind, in His heart, is that book. And God simply cannot trust you with that book. We ain't giving it to you. Because the key to getting it is faithfulness. And the key to getting it is not faithful in anything but the structure that God has given you, that God, through going up and getting what you need, the all-sufficiency will establish you through your faithfulness. And you won't be like the broken foot out of joint, a broken tooth of the foot out of joint. You'll, people will see you and will have confidence in you. They won't have confidence in you because you're a great person. They won't have confidence in you because you're lovely or you're beautiful or your teeth are really nice. They're going to have confidence in you because they see the faithfulness in you in what God has given you. That's how it works. It's never about our IQ or our abilities. It's simply about, you know, our faithfulness to what He's given us. And in gaining the confidence of God uh, in this church or any other church, it comes by being established in the church through ministry. And you just find three basic things that you follow. One of all, first of all, we need to be faithful in ministry because that's where it starts. See it as what God saved you for. Most people never see the ministry in that light. They see it once they get saved as an intrusion in their life something that they've got to put up with. 
they don't see it as the main purpose that God saved you in the first place. So the first thing we need to do is be faithful in ministry. The second thing we need to do is be fearless in the ministry because I'm going to tell you something. The moment you, and I've seen this in some of you young guys and gals' lives and some of you older ones too, but especially the younger ones. As soon as you commit yourself to be faithful, somebody in your world is going to try to pull you off task. It may, be, uh, it may be a friend, it may be a relative, it may be a brother or a sister, it may be your mom or dad, but I am guarantee you, if you're going to be faithful in ministry and get to the end, you're going to have to be fearless in ministry. And you're going to have to realize that sometimes Jesus said in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John that he didn't come down to put together, he came to divide. And the ministry and doing what's right in the Bible may divide you from your family. It may divide you from your friends. It may divide you from the very people who want to pull you off task. And you not only got to be faithful, you got to be, you got to be fearless. Then the third thing, you got to be fervent. You do it with all your might. You do it with all your strength. You do it with all your diligence. You do the ministry through the work of God has called you to do. I like it's the only real thing in this world because at the end of the day, it is the only real thing in this world. I've told you many, many times, there's only two things in this world that are worth investing your life in because they're the only two things that are eternal. One of them is the Word of God and the other one is the souls of men. And they both have to be through the church, the structure in the New Testament. You know, I talked the last couple of weeks about, for me personally, the joy of, of, of the ministry. And, you know, and, and my joy is, is my total confidence I have in, in, in so many of you. You know, uh, and, and the beauty of it is, or the blessing is, I actually got wa- watched God establish you. You know, it, it's, it's, you know, the other night when I, I gave you the um, last Sunday, I think it was, or maybe it was a Sunday before, when we talked about this, this, this uh, kid and his mom who's got, you know, cancer and, you know, and uh, they, 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 nobody's there to help them. And God just kind of dropped that in our lap. And it was beautiful because it was this Christmas time, which is a natural shoehorn to get into somebody's world. And our lady jumped on it. But, you know, they, we had a little get-together over to Brackeen's and invited those two boys to go to Amanda's concert and then come on over to the house. And I stopped by. I had my own little concert I had to go to with, uh, with Kenzie, who sang a wonderful solo. Where's she at? Stand up, Kenzie. She's in a wheelchair this morning. She can't stand up. <laughs> Just sing a few bars of that for us. And I, you know what? Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Well, I got this here. Stand up. Just stay up a minute. Now, I, I want to talk to you about something. I'm going to talk about everybody. You did a wonderful job that night singing. There must have been a thousand people there. I expect you to sing a song in church some morning. Okay. You do your mom. You who do a duet, Star Spangled Banner. <laughs> or in your mother's case, the Star Spangled Banana, but it doesn't matter to me. <laughs> but I watched you kids that night. And I, and I didn't come in. I didn't even introduce myself. One of the reasons I was really hungry and the food was going pretty quick. So I got, no, I just stood back and I watched. I watched you guys. Nobody told you to do it. Nobody prodded you to do it. I watched those two young guys who are probably going to get saved if we just take our time with it. And who knows, as the mom, who you ladies are doing a great job with her. But I watched you guys sit there 
around there. And we must have had 10, 15 of our kids there. Younger high school kids, some of the older kids. And you just sat around in there and it was just a fun time. Those kids felt so at home. And I thought to myself, these kids have a confidence about them. Nobody did anything stupid. There was sensitivity all over the place. You just sat there and ministered to them, laughed, had a good time, and, and, and got yourself in the door with those questions. And it came to the lock-in Friday night. Uh, you know, I sat there and amazed, and I, I just, you know, in ministry, one of the great, one of the great secrets of success in a man's ministry is his ability to delegate responsibility to people. Most pastors will never do that. One, they think that nobody can do it as good as they can, and uh, they're not into delegating anything to anybody because they, you know, they want, they, they want to do it all themselves. And, you know, rule number one, if you ever become a pastor, rule number one is simply know your own limitations. There's a lot of things that I don't do well. And I don't sit around all day long worrying about it or fretting over it or trying to appear that I do well when I don't. I just thank God that God's given me people who do it well who I can get to do it for me. Because that's what you do. You know, I have strengths and I have weaknesses. You have strengths and you have weaknesses. In the ministry, it's us marring ourselves up that my strengths fill in your weaknesses and your strength fill in mine. That's what makes it work. Most pastors are paranoid that somebody's going to know the Bible or do it better than they do. I expect you to do it better than me. I, I coach you and teach you that someday you can do it better than me. I, I, I watch you. I've got guys in my church who I know know the Bible as well as I do, who could preach as good as I do. That's not a threat to me. That's a, that, is a, that is a blessing to watch it. It's one of the greatest teaching tools that you're ever going to find is, is delegating to you the responsibility and the accountability of ministry and then watch you grow through it. Make you be faced with the hardline things where you don't, can't run to me and say, Bob, they said this. How come I, you fix this for me? You got to fix it. You now got to stand at the batter's box and you got to swing at the ball. You now got to take the responsibility for what you say, what you do, how people are going to react. You now need to get and grow through that. And my confidence in you was built as you came down the assembly line of this church. And I watched you start the day you got saved, didn't know much of anything, and then God puts you on the assembly line of disciple one and two and people, and I watched you grow. You're not like a general car that just comes off the assembly line that you can go to any Ford dealership and buy. Uh-uh. You were a special order. They called it in in Detroit and said, I want this, 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 put in this. I don't want the normal car off the line. I want a special car. That's you. God building everything that you needed. And I watched you come down that assembly line. Like Samuel, like Timothy. And, I, and, and most of all, your faithfulness to the work that God has given us here. And you, like Paul and Timothy, have my complete confidence. When I put you in charge, you're in charge. Now, I'll stop you if I see some great disaster going to unfall, but in nine times out of ten, it's yours. Because that's the only way you learn. 
Let me tell you something. If I put you in charge of something, it's because I got the confidence you can do it, and I'm not going to do it. And I'm not going to be hanging over your shoulder making sure you do everything. You got to have the freedom to grow and develop yourself different than the way I would do it. Because you know why? Because a lot of times, if not most of the time, the way you do it is probably better than the way I would do it. And you're like Paul with young Timothy. You have my complete confidence. I trust you because I see God trusting you. And that's good enough for me. You know, in Hebrews chapter 11, you have the great chapter on God's hall of fame. And you see the confidence that God had in those men in the Old Testament because they were faithful men. You know, and I know I could have just taken the whole morning this morning and I could have talked about broken tooth people and foot out of joint and just, you know, talked about worthless people and ranted and raved on that. But that's, that, I made my point with that. I'm good. I'd rather talk about established people. I'd rather talk about helping you become everything that God wants you to be by getting the confidence wherever you're at whether it's here, whether it's up in Lincoln, wherever you guys are at, getting in there, doing the job, paying the price, staying on point. Don't let anybody pull you off and recognize that God saved you for that purpose. And then let God establish you in it. Let God raise up here in Lincoln the, the leadership that's coming up through the ranks. But I'll tell you right now, there will be people to try to stop that in your life. And you've got to be smarter than the problem. And your all-sufficiency, like last week, is based on what you do with a honeycomb. I want to motivate you to be better. I want to help you to be better. I want to push you to be better. I want you to see what's inside you that God has and He wants to develop. Being a faithful priest. Like Timothy, your unfeigned faith. You know, in Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30, I've preached on it many, many times. It's that great passage that God's looking for a man. He was looking for a man, the Bible says, to stand in the gap to make up the hedge. And in Israel's day, when he's writing this, Israel in the captivity in Ezekiel, and there was no man to make up the breach and make up the hedge and make up the gap that was now in the Old Testament nation of Israel's structure. And God was looking for a man. He never found one. But it's no different than today because in New Testament, modern-day Christianity, brother, there are some gaps, there are some breaches, and there are some holes. And your job and my job is to definitely let God establish you, let God make you through your faithfulness, and then allow you to stand in that gap and make up the hedge. Plug the hole and get the job done. Being sensitive to any and all circumstances. Stay away from those who will bear false witness. Mark them. Get them out of your world and come into the place where you're having an understanding that it takes our faithfulness. It takes faithful men to do the work of God. And at that faithfulness, God will establish you in this New Testament church and God will have confidence in you to get the work done and everybody else will see it. Well, we'll hold up that 